Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 913. Follow your bliss. You know, that's just, you know, follow your heart, follow your passion, find out what your passion is, believe in it, put yourself into that picture that you have in your mind and just start believing it until you're living it. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, David Steele. Hey, David, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Uh, depends. Passenger or driver? Well, today you can be the driver and I'll sit beside you and you can take us wherever you'd like to go. How's that sound? How about we co-drive? Okay, we'll do that. It's always fun to hop into the driver's seat. Sounds like a plan to me. David Steele is the director of the American Hot Rod Foundation. Their work is first and foremost about preservation. They work to save the stories and innovations and accomplishments made by our pioneer generation so they can pass along these lessons to future generations. They present hot rodding as an art form that is still practiced today. David is also a freelance automotive journalist whose byline has appeared in Hot Rod Deluxe magazine. He collects and restores old vehicles. He's judged at national concours events, and he's a member of the Peterson Automotive Museum, the Classic Car of America, and a lifetime member of the Antique Automobile Club of America. David is also a graduate of the NASA High Performance Driving School and the Putnam Park High Performance Driving School of Indianapolis. In his former career, David was a professional musician. He's been on The Tonight Show, Conan O'Brien, Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel. Well, David, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment and share a little bit more about your career, what you're doing these days, and your very obvious passion for automobiles? Sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm very flattered to be on the show in, in such good company. Yeah, I'm born and raised in... Uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, son of a factory worker, auto worker. My dad worked at the Tonawanda metal casting plant, which was a, a Chevrolet uh, metal casting plant for many, many decades. Grew up around cars. My dad was a restorer and racer and collector and, uh, you know, just kind of brought me into the shop before I even remember. I'm sure I was helping him as soon as I could walk. So I kind of really didn't have a, a much of a choice in it. I got bit by the bug early on and uh, made my way into the music business, but always had a passion for cars. And after a 20-year run uh, as a professional musician, I met Steve and Carol Mamishian, who are the founders of the American Hot Rod Foundation. And the timing was just right. And they, they needed uh, a new director and some new blood to come in and see if we can work on social media aspects of it and spread the word a little wider. And so I took that job about almost four years ago now and, and just absolutely love it. Yeah, it's great. Well, welcome back to the car industry. We're so glad to have you as part of our clan here. It's exciting. And as we continue on your automotive journey and learn more about you, I always start by asking my guests for a success quote or a mantra, some kind of a saying that has a great meaning to you. And it's a nice way to get the inspirational tires smoking here on Cars Yeah. So I'm going to hand the driver's seat over to you. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, this is a usual one, I suppose. A lot of people have this mantra or a version of it. 
my version comes from Joseph Campbell, who I'm a big fan of. His idea for life is to follow your bliss. You know, that's just, you know, follow your heart, follow your passion, find out what your passion is, believe in it, put yourself into that picture that you have in your mind and just start believing it until you're living it. And uh, I guess that would be kind of my unedited version. Yes, that is what this show is all about, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, people who've figured out how to wrap their passion for cars into their lives, their careers, what they do every day. So uh, together, we can inspire those folks that are trying to figure out how to do that. And hopefully along the, our journey here today, you can share some of those tips that got you into that position. Let's go back in time, though. First, you talk about your dad working at that Chevrolet plant, but I'd love to hear a story about what instigated your personal passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment in your life when you realize that you were indeed a car guy? Yes. And this goes right back to my dad. It was a particular car and the way it was used in our family, what it represented to our family, almost to the point where it was kind of a family member. My father, incredibly enough, had this grueling third shift, uh, you know, midnight to 8 a.m. job at a factory. And he was also a an on-call for the hours that he was not at work. He was an on-call volunteer firefighter for the uh, Kenmore Fire Department. Wow kind of suburb on the north side of Buffalo. And uh, he found himself in the position of being fire chief, actually, for that firehouse. It was a very big, beautiful brick and limestone firehouse from the turn of the century, very Buffalo kind of architecture and kind of a centerpiece of our neighborhood in, in a way. So to have my father be the fire chief when you're a little kid and kids are already kind of crazy about fire trucks and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I was no different. But here's my dad, who's the fire chief. And um, he decided in 1972, I think it was, yeah, it was Easter weekend, famously, because my mom loves to tell the story that he dragged a car in pieces home on Easter weekend. That's how he spent Easter weekend in 1972. But he purchased a 1960 Corvette out of the Buffalo Evening News paper and uh, for $450, which had already had a very hard life. It was an ex-race car. And uh, he incredibly, in our little tiny garage behind our house in Buffalo, he restored this car in about a seven or eight month time. And he painted it fire engine red. And when he got the fire chief position with uh, uh, the fire department, he decided to replace the high beam headlights with red lens lights and put them on a relay, put a siren in the car, <laughs> mounted a radio and scanner under the dashboard and put all of his fire gear and extinguishers and everything in the trunk. And that was his fire chief's car. Oh, how cool. And this was a mean little motor scooter. I mean, it was 456 gear, four speed when it still had the remains of this drag motor that was in it, this 301 cubic inch uh, 283 with a huge camshaft and super high compression. I mean, it was just a beast. But when he had a fire call to get to, he'd get there real fast in that <laughs> yeah, car. And he was a very good driver. He was a SCCA solo guy who did pretty well. And so he knew how to drive that car on the loose. So here I am, this little kid. My dad's the fire chief, and his fire chief's car is a 1960 red Corvette 
you know, with chrome reverse wheels and it's jacked up in the front and it's real loud. And, and we had this deal in the family. I have two older brothers. When the fire call happened, the scanner that we had in the house, which was in the stairwell, would echo through the whole house. And he would blast out of bed whatever, whatever time of day it was because, again, he worked at night. And he'd be putting on his fire gear as he's coming down the stairs. And of the three boys, if you could get your hand on the door handle on the passenger side door of the car, by the time he got to the car, you could ride with him to the fire. Oh, how fun. <laughs> wow. And so you'd get in the car and strap in. And there was that, oh, my God, bar the polite way to put it. Yes. That grab bar on the dashboard right in front of you, which I could just barely reach when I was a little kid. But my memories of drifting around in that car with not just the ferociousness of the sound of the car itself, but the siren was deafening. (laughs) And my dad is just going through the gears and downshifting and honking his horn and driving on the other side of the road. And then you get to a fire call and he jumps out and the and the other deal was you could you can't leave the car no matter what you right. stay in the car just the the experience of that the violence of being in that car and the admiration i had for my dad you know kind of watching him rule all of this you know and kind of command all of this chaos right was just so overwhelming and it just to say the least, I'll never forget it. But I mean, it kind of permeates every bit of my car passion. <laughs> well, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the many roads you've driven down and talk about a big challenge or a big failure you've faced along the way in your career of some kind. Could be in your life, too. But the great thing about these hard-learned experiences are the lessons they teach us. So take us to one of yours and share, would you? Sure. I would probably point to... The time in my career, I had been in the music business for about 20 years and was very lucky, made my living with it consistently for, you know, all of that time with a couple of kind of dry spells that, you know, the entertainment business ebbs and flows always, no matter, you know, what level you're at. But I, you know, owned a house and had old cars and, you know, could experience that and you know, go to car events around the country and and whatnot. And it was all working great. And I loved it. But I could also see that the business was changing. And in a way that I did not like, and did not think was kind of being addressed. And it all kind of had to do with the internet coming in and the, the, not just the musicians union, but also the record labels and the publishing companies I think just kind of being blindsided by it, they let it develop to the point where it was so far out of the barn by the time they decided to even start talking about policing it, the fact that music had become free, it was just too late. And, you know, and as I continued to kind of see the decline in in revenue, uh, the decline in work, uh, the desperation that I would see with older and really more established players than me, you know, guys who were heroes of mine who were starting to kind of get scrappy, you know, and you'd see, you know, guys that played on some of my favorite records and you'd see them play up on, or they, you'd see them show up playing on what we call like a general business gig, right. you know, playing weddings and things, you know? Uh-huh. And I just thought, Oh, something is really wrong here. And this is not going in a good direction and no one's talking about it. And, 
you know, I don't know that I have it in me to, to start taking less and less money for the same kind of work. Right. And so I guess it started to kind of erode, you know, my passion for it. I could just see so many people were kind of being pushed back to the front of the line after having paid all their dues, established themselves. They did, they've done everything right. And yet this kind of outside force was really kind of sucking the air out of the room. And, yep. and so I kind of started life evaluation began. You know, I was uh, just on the north side of 40, had yet to be married and had always kind of wanted that to happen. But I was always touring so much that I was never felt like I really lived anywhere, even though I picked my mail up in Nashville and uh, always wanted to live in California but was honestly pretty darn intimidated by it. It's a difficult place to drop down your suitcase and, and uh, just say, well, here I am. Right. Hire me. <laughs> this is, yeah, exactly. This is going to be great. And especially at that age, you know, I mean, you, you know, when you're 42, you don't have the energy of a 22 year old. And I just started thinking, well, what else am I really passionate about? What's realistic? As much as I was kind of seeing the, the lack of, health in the business, music business in Nashville, oh, it was much worse in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't really know that till I got here. And so I just kind of dove into my other great passion, which was cars and, you know, started trying to write and um, contribute in, in any way I could, got myself out into the the car community here met as many people as I could try to get a feel for how are people doing it? How are they making sense of this world? I'd always been a huge fan and really of and really admired the American Hot Rod Foundation and the work that the Mamishian family had been doing. And I had been contributing to them kind of quietly, just kind of sending them interviews that I had done with Hot Rod Pioneers and whatnot. And it just kind of struck me that maybe I should just call them. Maybe I should just reach out and and see what's going on over there. Yes, yes. <laughs> and this and I think maybe if through all this rambling, if there's a message here, it was kind of first on my list. It was the thing that that I thought, well, that's kind of the gold standard because this is a nonprofit. These people are doing this out of the goodness of their own heart. There's nothing in it for them. They do it very quietly. It's all about the subject matter, which is which are these guys that, you know, went to World War Two and came home and built these cars and wanted to go land speed racing. And through that developed, you know, speed equipment and push things along at a at lightning speed. I mean, it's incredible. And I just thought I love everything about this. To me, that's kind of my favorite thing. And I thought, well, why don't you contact your favorite thing? You know, right. And so I just did. I just went right to the, the bullseye and it paid off because, again, and, you know, luck plays into everything. But uh, the timing, admittedly, was just perfect because they were kind of looking for a guy like me. <laughs> perfect. It's an awesome story. And the takeaway I get from this story is focus on what you're passionate about and reach out and communicate with the people around it. The fact that you participated in events and then you reached directly to a source that interested you because you'll be surprised 
who might answer the phone and where you might go. So that's my takeaway. How about a aha moment? Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about a career aha moment. You, you kind of shared one right there, but I like to say it's a time when the headlights kind of illuminate your way to a new path. You made a huge career pivot. Very brave, difficult thing to do. But you're right. Sometimes it's not our own fault that things change. Things happening around us. And I've had a lot of people on this show who were formerly in the music industry and went through the exact same thing you went through. So tell us about your career aha moment. You know, I don't know that I have one outside of just the following, which is just which is kind of a tag on to the end of of what I just talked about. But I think the greatest lesson or or when the kind of lights went on in the room and I was like, oh, this is kind of the key to this. You got to go where it is. Like if you're crazy about something, where is that happening? Where's that coming from? We've never lived in a better time for this because you don't have to even do this literally now. You know, right. when I was studying music at Berkeley in, in Boston, I started kind of zeroing in on a particular kind of music that I was really interested in at the time, which was kind of kind of roots American songwriter people, kind of all the descendants of Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. And I realized that most of those people lived in Nashville, Tennessee. I wasn't planning to move to Nashville, Tennessee, but it just made too much sense at one point because all these people that I love, John Prine, Steve Earle, John Hyatt, Lucinda Williams, all these these great American songwriters, all of them lived there. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go where they go. I'm just going to go to where they go. And when I got to that town, which was much smaller in 1992, by the way, mm -hmm. I heard where they hung out. I heard, you know, that, oh, well, John Prine goes to the station in and here's bluegrass. And so I started going to the station in, not because I thought I'd run into him, but because I thought, well, if he thinks that's cool, then I'm going to go there. <laughs> and then sure enough, I did meet him. And then my very first job in Nashville was playing guitar for John Prine. Oh, wow. And he was the guy who I first and foremost thought about. You know, I thought, well, if Nashville's good enough for John Prine, it's got to be good enough for me. And, and the other guy on the list was Steve Earle, and he was the next guy that I whose band I joined and played guitar for. So it was this insane kind of like fantasy becoming reality thing. Because again, I just thought, well, where is this? And I kind of look at California the same way. Uh, when I realized that cars are so my passion, and I, I just have to pursue something with cars. Well, kind of, where's a lot of the car stuff going on? Well, it's kind of happening. And in California. So I would just say, study and understand what this passion is that they have. And where is it growing out of the ground most easily and, and abundantly, and just kind of go there. And, right. and like I say, I, I want to follow that up with, you know, you can, you can do this from anywhere now because of the internet, you know, you can connect and network with who are the people who are the players who are, who are the people I admire. And how do I get into the conversation? Just go to it. Go to the source. Just go to it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, how about a proudest career moment? I would assume you had a, quite a few of those, but is there one that stands out you would share? This seems like a frivolous one because it's such a kind of goofy 
teenage fantasy. And I don't think it's flattering to me <laughs> that I <laughs> that I had such a kind of like, you know, I, I wanted this moment in time, you know, when I was a kid. And that was playing on the David Letterman show. Oh, yeah. I was a David Letterman fanatic. I mean, to the point where I literally taped the shows every night got up an hour early before school and watched the shows so I could repeat his jokes to my my classmates. <laughs> and uh, so I was a fanatic about his show. And he always seemed to have kind of cool, like Tom Waits and all these interesting people would be on his show, as well as like legends like Chuck Berry and people would be on, on the David Letterman show. So it seemed kind of like a rebel show. And uh, I just loved that about it. And for some reason... I don't remember when this would have been, but I told myself when I was in high school, I'm sure it was in high school, that you have to perform on the David Letterman show by the time you're 25. <laughs> and I, I didn't quite make it, but I, but I wasn't, I think I was 27. <laughs> well, that's pretty close. I remember just that goofy, you know, like walking in the side door, you know, and meeting Biff Henderson, who's showing us where our dressing room is. And I'm like, yeah, I know who you are, you know. You know, and then meeting him and then walking out on that stage and kind of looking around at that theater and realizing, well, I mean, this is all going to be over in a couple hours. And it seemed like kind of a silly thing to kind of put on this pedestal. But I guess I did it. And and it was more kind of and as I mean, as much of a thrill as that is. And and I'll never forget that first time of doing that. It was more the lesson of, wow, you set this goofy goal for yourself and you actually did it which was a good thing to know it's like a good thing to have in your little personal toolbox you know like well i set out to do that and i did that well let's go back in time and talk about your first really special car what was that vehicle well funny enough it's a car that i still own nice it's my very first car oh wow it means a lot to me it's a 71 chevelle super sport but a very base model car with a 350 and but I bought it in high school when I was 17 with a little little help from my dad uh-huh. and the two of us uh, fixed it up and I mean I drove it to high school drove it to senior prom but it was the car that really taught me how to be in the hobby hands-on yeah I mean to that point I was just a, a kid helping his dad in the garage and admittedly getting to work with a, a very talented guy who had really really cool cars and cars from all eras but it was his stuff. You had to be careful with it. A 71 Chevelle is a car you can do a lot of trial and error with. Of they're course. very tough. They're very durable. Replacement parts are easy to come by, and they're they're relatively cheap. And um, I turned that car into, believe it or not, a trophy-winning kind of local, regional, concours-level car. And then as soon as it got a little tatty and wasn't placing very well, I started to drive it more often. And then that turned into turning it into a kind of a street strip car, which is what it is now. But, uh, you know, I'll have that car for the rest of my life. I think I've put 180,000 miles on it myself. Wow. And I bought it from the original owner, which a guy I'm still in touch with, a guy named Steve Pinnock back in Bedford, Indiana, who, funny enough, bought it. Special ordered it at 17 and his mom co-signed for it. Nice. So buying the car from him as a 17-year-old kind of tickled him. So, yeah, that's always going to be a special car to me. Every time I get in it, it's it's like an old pair of shoes. It it smells the same as it always has. There's an indentation in the dashboard 
from a friend of mine in high school who had a binder under his arm and I slammed on the brakes and he slid right into the dash and put this divot <laughs> yeah. in, in the dash and it's still there, you know? And right. I mean, there are tons of little things like that all over that car that make it it's special for me. So that'd be probably the one in first place. I guess so. Well, you're very fortunate to still have that car. How about seller's remorse? Is there a vehicle you've let go that you really wish you had back? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, this isn't anything too exotic, but it's one of the few times I was really like really ahead of the market. (laughs) But uh, I bought a 65 Mustang fastback in 1996 six or seven. And back when those cars were still fairly affordable, I mean, it was in a, in a very nice car. It was, it had been resprayed one time, forest green, black interior, 289, four speed, 350 rear end. It had been kind of Shelbyized, but only mechanically. It had torque thrusts and black wall Dunlops on it. Very subtle looking car, no stripes or anything like that. Yeah. Basically like the 65 version of the bullet car. Okay. You know, man, I don't know what it is about that car or was about that car. I miss it every day. It just did everything I wanted it to. It it uh, behaved magnificently. I mean, it just was this little miracle machine. It got like 18 miles to the gallon on the highway. It ran mid-14s in the quarter. It was like an anvil. I couldn't – and I mean, I really enjoyed driving that car. You could – you could really turn that thing up and kind of drift it around and, and really have fun with it. And it just asked for more over <laughs> and over and over again. And it was a nice enough car that you could take it to like local car shows and cruise-ins and open the hood. And it, everything was detailed very nicely, very nice, presentable car. But it just it just kind of like solidified this position and uh, and love for just the great GT cars. And I think when those cars are done right, I think they they fall into that category. But I miss that car every day. And, oh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I take you back down a long, drifting road? Very nice story. Well, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about what has you excited and fired up today, a little bit more about the American Hot Rod Foundation. I would love to tell you that, yeah. Because that that has me fired up every day. I mean, it it is such a great thing to be a part of. Like I say, Steve and Carol Mamishian started this in 2002. Thank God they did this when they did. I'm sure they wish they had started it in 1970, you know, Mm -hmm. but they started it as soon as they could. And the the first thing they did was they they put together a, a little film crew directed by Henry Astor who is my predecessor as, as director of the foundation. And they literally just, they traveled around the country with a small film crew with Henry interviewing hot rod pioneers, you know, guys like Ed Iskandarian, Ray Brown, Barney Navarro. Unfortunately, a a lot of guys that are gone Mm -hmm. now, Tommy Sparks, my, my dear old friend and got to capture on film these great long form interviews with these guys who were born, you know, most of them born in the teens and twenties and just capturing that kind of magic. It's like this magic makeup, you know, combination of events that made those guys, Mm -hmm. they grew up in the depression. The, The depression was all they knew. 
dirt poor, pretty much straight across the line. It's amazing the poverty that these guys report on when you when you talk to them. And I still do interviews today. We continue to, to do interviews all the time. Of course, again, I'm, I'm now talking to mostly guys that were born in the 20s and 30s. But uh, it is amazing, you know, that they these guys talk about becoming in, uh, interested in cars early on. A lot of them were, you know, involved in agriculture, you know, farming families. And so the Model T was around and, and was a tool, you know, to be used in every way imaginable. But these guys would get their hands on these things for three or four dollars out of a scrapyard, get them running and then cut the exhaust off, take everything off the car. Next thing they know, they have this like little speedster runabout thing. And uh, then they go off to World War II and they're presented with a whole world of exotic materials, aluminum, uh, hydraulics, tooling, welders, things that they could never imagine. I mean, one one guy I remember said to me, it was like walking in, he worked um, in Burbank uh, assembling airplanes. And uh, he said it was like walking into the greatest race shop ever imaginable. He's like, you had an unlimited budget because it was the government's budget. Right. And they learned about everything. They learned about the highest level of engine building, the highest level of tuning, because there's absolutely no room for error. They're trying to save the world. So, you know, you've got these kind of scrappy kids who are just grateful to have fresh clothes and three square meals a day. They're learning to be the best mechanics they could ever imagine they could be. And then they come out the other end of that with all this kind of gusto and enthusiasm and momentum. You know, again, they've they've saved the world. And unlike a lot of their buddies, they've made it. They made it through the other end. They come home and they start buying Model A's and 32 Roadsters. And with all this adrenaline, they, they go out on the dry lakes. And another thing that I hear from a lot of these guys uh, we're looking at a picture of you right now. This is 1946, and you're sitting on a on a crate in this 32 Ford hanging onto the door with your arm. You're not even strapped in the car, and the guy looks at me and he goes, well, you wouldn't want to be strapped in the car. <laughs> you know, the, right. the Maston Gregory theory, right? Mm-hmm. And so to be around those guys who – that's a joke to them. That looks scary to me, but that guy looked to me and he said – well, no one was shooting at me, so I wasn't scared. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so the honor of being around those guys on a regular basis and learning from them, learning their stories, g- gathering their stories up for the foundation is just incredible. And by the time I came on board, I believe they had captured 120 film interviews. Again, these are long form film interviews. With these guys, I think we have something like eight or nine hours with Barney Navarro, which that's just fascinating stuff. So it's such a labor of love to get up in the morning every day and and kind of I have kind of morning morning duties where I kind of go online and check all our social media stuff and kind of answer questions and see who's posting what and and see who might have photo collections and things that we can scan. That's another aspect of the foundation. We have a photo archive of digitized photos that I think is approaching like 180,000 photos or something. I mean, just a massive collection of photos going all the way back to the earliest road races. I mean, the Venice Grand Prix with chain driven stuff all the way up to K1 
Can-Am era is about where we seem to kind of fall off with with what we uh, try and document and save. But if I sound like I'm all over the map kind of talking about this, it's just because there there are so many aspects to it and they're all so fun and they and they they all make me so happy and there's so much to learn you know from from these people it's uh it's a great joy to be a part of it no doubt the greatest generation indeed well very noble what you guys are doing there it's absolutely fantastic one of those names you mentioned ed iski iskandarian has been a guest here on cars yeah he was my eldest guest ever 96 years old sharp as attack wonderful guy to have on the show i was so honored to have him as a guest well here's a very introspective question for you david if you were a car what kind of car would david be and why <laughs> you know, I would. I'm going to have to go back to my Mustang, and but I'll I'll say a full on '65 Shelby GT350. Cool. I say that because I'll get heat from Shelby guys for this, but but I I hope they'll understand because it is the reputation of the car. I'm not a sophisticated guy. I, I don't come from a line of social elites. <laughs> uh huh. Uh, you know, with, with tremendous backgrounds and education and accomplishment, I'm not a Rockefeller. And that's kind of how I think of, you know, so many of the great marks, you know, like Jaguar or something has, has this lineage, you know. And, and to me, the, the GT350, it's kind of it, – it showed up at this game and it was all about spirit. I mean, it was a tremendous package for sure, but – it showed itself more through kind of the spirit of the thing that it would be competitive. And I sometimes think of myself that way. I know that I, I've been involved in things in my career where there were smarter people in the room for sure, where there were more talented people in the room for sure. But I knew that I could out drive them. And I don't mean like driving on a track. I just knew that there's no way they want this more than me. And there's something about that car that speaks that way to me, too. It just had this kind of like, really, you're going to take this reskinned Falcon and put it on a track and try to to win a B production championship with it? Or I guess it was B production, wasn't it? With yes. That car? Uh -huh. But they did. You know, they did with this kind of humble package. And so I don't know, maybe I'm patting myself on the back a little too much there. <laughs> well, that's why I say it's a very introspective question. So I always enjoy the answers. Well, David, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars yeah sponsors. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and the interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. That's right. 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft has been manufacturing premium quality exterior and interior covers for over 50 years with a stellar reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit over 80,000 patterns and growing. They are the only cover I'll put on my vehicles. You can choose from a wide variety of fabrics, styles, colors, and more. From full cover designs for factory to custom-made vehicles, plus convertible top covers, trucks, truck cab coolers, motorcycles, scooters, ATVs, trailers, campers, personal watercraft, and a wide variety of custom features. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark sent you. That's Covercraft.com. 
If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. All right, David, we are back, and we're entering the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? I think it was something my dad said uh, when I was overthinking uh, repair on a car. He said, don't try to outthink the car. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Dad. That's a good one. (laughs) I think it's the first time I've heard that, too, which is very cool. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes over the years? I think just trying to really understand what I want. (laughs) Gotcha. No, you mentioned it earlier. You said it very well, quite succinctly there. So I understand. That's a tough thing for many people to do. And it's a tough thing when you talk to people when they're not happy with what they're doing. I ask people all the time, what are you passionate about? And they sit there and they can't even figure that out. So yes, uh, understanding that about yourself is key to a happy life. Now, there are lots of great resources out there these days. And no doubt what you guys are creating there at the American Hot Rod Foundation is an awesome resource. And I'll make sure that that is posted on your show notes page on the Cars Yet website. But is there another resource that you think our listeners would enjoy? Yes. Aside from the American Hot Rod Foundation, the stuff the Revs Institute has made available to people is just astounding. Tremendous resource. The Peterson Museum, certainly, especially if you can attend, if you can physically make it to the museum, it's just mind-blowing. Right. Um, But they also have a lot of great resources online. Um, Sports Car Marketplace, I continue to to find just a great resource for kind of understanding the culture, which I I prefer to think of it more as the culture than the market, because I just like to know what people are crazy about. It's interesting to me, especially when new things somehow jump onto the radar, you know, like Japanese cars developed this following in the last 10 years that is so interesting to me and right. well-deserved. Uh, and it's just fun to see. So I guess, yeah, somewhere in there, the, that, that little list. Yeah. It's a great list. I've had probably four people now from the Peterson Museum on the show, including Terry Cargus and Leslie and Bruce Meyer, folks that are, are part of that museum. Uh, of course, Keith Martin, Sports Car Market Magazine, has been a guest here on the show. Uh, the Revs, I've been trying to get somebody from that entity on because so many people talk about it. I'm so aware of it, but I'm going to land somebody here soon. So if anybody out there listening knows someone, key at the revs, tell them I would love to have them be a guest here on Cars Yeah. If I could arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry or field, living or deceased, who would that be? I would have to say Enzo Ferrari. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That'd be something. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, well, yeah. Like who wouldn't want to have, (laughs) want it to be Enzo Ferrari? But uh, for me, I I find him infinitely fascinating because he's like a combination of an engineer and an artist. And he seemed to be 
split right down the middle with that because I find it just amazing that his love of his creations actually got in his way many times. Right. You know, where he refused to change to rear engine until it was just so obvious that he had to change through, you know, little things like that where it, it was a such a personal thing for him. And, uh, oh, I, I, I love talking to those guys. It's not so much about, oh, look what this thing can do. It's more about, like, look what it is. Yeah, that would be something. Most definitely. Now, how about a book? Is there a book you've read that you think our listeners should crack open and read as well? Well, it's it's a little bit of a toss-up between two books. Um, because I find, you know, Innes Ireland has this book, All Arms and Elbows, that to me is so beautiful. It's just such a great, like, if you want to know what it felt like to be one of those guys in that time, that book knocks me out. But if it's okay, I actually have a book I'd recommend more than that, uh-huh. um, which is The American Hot Rod by Dean Batchelor. Batchelor, yes. Because uh-huh. yeah. that, to me, is the absolute Bible for hot rodding. If anybody who's listening who thinks you know, I should probably have like one hot rod book on my shelf, I guess, even though I'm kind of a sports car guy or a Porsche guy or I'm a bike guy or whatever you are that isn't hot rodding. If you're going to have one book, The American Hot Rod by Dean Batchelor, it's everything you'd ever need. It's just fantastic. Well said, and it sits on my library shelf as well. Well, listeners, you can find links to all these great resources David has been so kind to share on his Cars Yeah show notes page. Just go to CarsYeah.com, type in David Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E, and that will pop up with all these cool links so you can access everything he shared today. All right, David, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a bit of a doozy. Today, I'm going to buy you any cool collector car on the planet. doesn't matter what it is, but you've got to keep it. It's the only one you can have, and I'll get a little deal here. You can park your pride and joy you've had since way back when in the corner. Let's pretend that doesn't exist. <laughs> so I'm, I won't make you sell that today. So I, I want a different answer than the car you already have. What would that vehicle be and why? It would be a 250 GT short wheelbase Ferrari. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Well, besides the obvious, what is it you like about that car? Uh, I mean – not a bad angle. You you could look at that car for an entire day in a room, walking around it. You could get on a ladder and look down on it. It's so stunningly beautiful. And to me, the fact that it still has this little nod to the fifties, it's got a Darren dip in it. It's got, you know, a nod to the fifties kind of thing, but there's also kind of a, you can see what's coming. Yeah. And, and so it's got a little bit of this transition thing, but at the same time, it is completed. It's a totally completed car. It's so done. I couldn't think of a thing to change about it. I just think it's the greatest GT car of all time. Just as far as a closed car with that platform, I just can't imagine anything more uh, delightful. <laughs> It's one of my favorites as well. They're just absolutely stunning, beautiful cars. 
I better get the big checkbook out for you then, buddy, because that thing is not cheap. I think they're running in oh the, my God. the 15, yeah. 16, 17 million dollar range and maybe more now. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, probably, probably for a tatty one. Yeah, um, maybe so. <laughs> with questions. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, David, you've taken us on a great ride today, a great hot rod ride today. I've really enjoyed learning more about you and what you guys are doing there to preserve this very important history and part of our culture here in the United States. I want to thank you for this journey today and, uh, I wondered if you could offer us a little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you drive off into the sunset there in your 250 GT short wheelbase. (laughs) I would just say, whatever it is you want to do, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. There's not going to be a better time. Now is the time. It's always the time. If I can just say real quick, my mom relayed a story to me where she met this guy who is a coworker of my, my oldest brothers at a dinner party who lives here. And I lived in Tennessee and that guy is successful, lives in Napa, has a place in LA and he's about my age. That's son of a gun. And my mom just making conversation says, you know, my son has been wanting to move to California for so long. He talks about it all the time. And, and the guy goes, well, he should just go. And she says, well, but, you know, he's got this going on. He goes, well, he should just go. And she says, well, you know, right now he's on tour and he's doing this. And he goes, well, no, he should stop doing that and he should just go. (laughs) Yeah. And she kind of starts looking at him like, this is the only thing he's going to say. Yeah. And then I guess he kind of like looked, really looked in her eyes and said, uh, he's just got to do it now. You're describing a guy who's taught, who's been talking about something that's nagging at him and it won't go away. So he's got to do it and he's got to do it now. Anyway, that was a huge moment for me. And this is a guy I don't really even know, you know, sure, sure. but it worked for him and it's so far so good with me. I mean, I, as soon as I realized there's not going to be another time, I mean, I just did it. I mean, it happened real fast. And so, yeah, that's what I would say. Do not hesitate. Do it now. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Words of a loser. Just do it now. Don't hesitate. Wise words indeed. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and the American Hot Rod Foundation? Well, they can go to ahrf.com. Check out our website. It's got a lot of portals. Uh, You can spend a lot of time on there. Beautiful photo gallery that you can sort through, uh, and it's searchable as well. Uh, We do have a podcast of our own. Cool. It is called The Rodcast, which I host for the American Hot Rod Foundation. Nice. Where we talk to current and, you know, kind of senior members of the hot rod community. And we also share audio on that podcast of old interviews that we we did, you know, in the early and mid 2000s with sadly some of our, our, our guys who have passed. So that's a good resource if you want to check out what we're doing, what I'm doing. And we have a Facebook page that's that's really thriving. And uh, we have daily posts on that from our our archives. And everything is under the banner of American Hot Rod Foundation. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and, and all across the board. Excellent. Well, again, listeners, you can find links to everything that we've talked about here today on David's show notes page on the Car Show website. Go to carsyad.com, type David Steele into the search bar. That page will pop up. I would encourage you to check out what they're doing there at the foundation. Absolutely spectacular work to save our history and heritage. 
Hey, David, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Well, thank you. You're welcome. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage, and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Cars Yeah!